The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop infringing on the NFL's copyright. Who dat? Who dat? Who dat? It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 523 with guest Ron Jacobs, recorded live Wednesday, January 6th, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD in our TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com And now, the man who really wishes he was going to New Orleans for Mardi Gras this year, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Don Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. We're here for an hour with you. What's up, my friend? Eh, not too much, you know. Always an adventure. No complaints. No rest for the wicked. Yeah, that's what they tell me, yeah. What can I tell you about what's going on here? Not much. A lot of music happening here, a lot of Silverlight development, and uh, just my worlds are colliding, as they normally do. And, uh, okay, that's about it. That's all I got. I got nothing. You got nothing. Let's get into Better No Framework. All right. Uh, I will say this, though. Um, one of the coolest things I've done in the studio, and I got to take a video of this and put it on YouTube, is I have a uh, uh, an electric guitar with a Roland split pickup that, uh, and I don't know if I've talked about this on the show, but it basically sp- uh, picks up each string individually and sends the output of that to a brain, which can process each string individually. One of the things it can do is alternate tunings, so you can have a patch that's like open G, and now you play your guitar and it's completely d- tuned to an open chord. Uh, because it's doing real-time processing, right? Well, one of the things I do in this patch is I take the bottom two strings, I turn them into a bass, and then pan them hard left, because it's got a stereo output. Then I take the other four, and I make it sound like a jazz guitar or just, you know, feet bleed through or whatever. Pan that hard right. The left channel goes to a bass amplifier. The right channel goes to another amplifier. And then I have a switch where I could turn all that off and just use the regular guitar, and that goes through my regular guitar rig. And so what I do, now bear with me here, this is cool. <laughs> what I do is I take the output, the left bass channel and the right guitar channel, go through a stereo looper pedal. And the looper pedal just records, uh, you, you hit start and you play, and then you hit start, stop, and it just continues to loop. So I'll go through a looper pedal, put down bass and guitar at the same time, you know, for a song, and then go back and hit loop, switch it to my regular guitar, and now I'm soloing over it. So this is the only time that anyone in my town has ever seen a guitar player play with three amplifiers at the same time. I can't imagine anybody seeing anybody play a guitar with three amplifiers at the same well, time. Well, yeah, some tricky people do that, but I, I just thought that was very cool. Anyway, better know framework. And yeah, the video is forthcoming on that. Awesome. I'm a nerd guitar player, what can I say? So today I'm going to talk about a WPF class and a Silverlight class called Dependency Property. So dependency properties solve a a particular problem, and here's the problem. In the world of XAML, in the world of markup, Richard, let's say I create an object called basketball. And the basketball's got properties like, you know, the color and the size and the weight or anything like that, you know, whatever it has. And 
let's say I have I, I wanna I wanna make it bounce. But when it bounces, I wanna know that it's bounced. How do I do that in XAML? Well, you use triggers. But in order to do that kind of event notification in markup, you have to have properties that allow notification when uh you know when when the property changes. So that's where a dependency property comes in. You can create a dependency property, whether it's a Boolean or whatever it is, that on a change will allow for notification. And there's a great article at csharponline.net, which I've shrinksterized at shrinkster.com slash 1CHT. And you can go there. That's 1CHT. Uh, check out that article. It's really good at explaining it. The documentation is adequate, but you'll be scratching your head for a while. Definitely check out this article instead. Cool. Dependency property. Who's yakking at us, Richard? Ah, I got an email about 508. Uh, dear Carl and Richard, I'm currently a fourth-year computing science student at the University of Regina, and I agree with Corey Haynes about his proposed model for educating developers in show 508. During the podcast, someone mentioned that there's no software engineering degree. Well, actually, there's one at my school, but there's a big problem with the model used here for software systems engineering degrees. Maybe 30% of the classes required for an SSE degree are actually computing science. But the real differences between what a computing science degree means and what a software systems engineering degree means is, are basically unknown to the sort of people who really need to know future students and their parents. Ah. Further, since the computing science department wants more computing science degree students, they're further confusing prospective students and their parents by creating new programs to convert people from software systems engineering degrees to computing science degrees. I think that for Corey's proposed workshop to succeed, he must be able to convince people, specifically non-developers, that his program can have much more prestige than a four-year degree. Thanks, uh, Luke Burkholder. And P.S., I'm looking for work after I've done my degree in April. I put my uh, CV up at Stack Flow Overflow Careers. So I do have an ulterior motive. Ah. Hey, well, you know, this is a very interesting problem. And, and mm -hmm. I, I'm going to disagree with you, Luke. I don't think it's just the students and parents thing. The bigger thing is the employer. Does mm -hmm. an employer see a computing science degree and a, and a systems uh, engineering degree differently? What's going to be more valued? What's going to get, what shows that you have the skills to do the work they need you to do? And right. I think nobody has any confidence in any piece of paper right now. It's true. And uh, I think we got into this with Corey. The bigger thing here is the professional organization backing the engineer. Mm. Right. That's what's missing. What's here. the reputation of that organization? Have they churned out uh, students, for lack of a better word, that, that have failed to uh, live up to the certification? Well, and I, I just don't think that folks have that there's the organization doesn't exist that takes the responsibility. You know, when you hmm. get a doctor, you know, there's a medical association the back there yeah. who's ultimately liable the for bar that for lawyers, right? Yeah, that's the that's the bigger thing. Who assumes the liability? Hmm. And right now, there's no organization in software that assumes the liability of its quote unquote members. Hmm. So that, that piece is missing. Anyway, Luke, I left your, your job plug in here. I don't know if it's going to help you for anything, but I am going to send you a .NET Rocks mug, and that's got to make your life better for sure. Especially on a cold winter's morning like this, having a hot cup of coffee out of that .NET Rocks mug. It's mm. all good. And if you like a .NET Rocks mug, send us an email, .NET Rocks at franklins.net. Our guest today is Ron Jacobs. Ron is a senior technical evangelist in the Microsoft Platform Evangelism Group, based at the company headquarters in Redmond, Washington. Ron's evangelism is focused on Windows Communication Foundation, Windows Workflow Foundation, and App Fabric. Since 1999, Ron's been a product and program manager on various Microsoft products, including the .NET Framework, Windows Communication Foundation, and Com Plus. A top-rated conference speaker, author, and podcaster, Ron brings over 20 years of industry experience to his role of helping Microsoft customers and partners to build architecturally sound and secure applications. Welcome back, Ron. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, one question before we get started. In that, in the photo on .netrocks.com, was somebody biting your toe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that, I think somebody was actually. Yeah, it looks painful. <laughs> <laughs> How you been? 
You know, I've been uh, I've been doing great. You've been busy. Yeah, well, I just got back from uh, I, I was over in in Sandusky, Ohio, with a bunch of guys at this Codemash conference. You were Codemash. Yeah, I've heard of that. <laughs> yeah, that was that was quite a trip. You know, it's the first time I've been there, and they have this huge indoor water park, which yeah. was kind of weird, uh, being that there was like two feet of snow outside, but it was fun. Did you do the? Did you partake of the water park? You know, I did not. Yeah, I didn't either <laughs> when I was there. For some reason, it just seems a little uh, odd. But you know, yeah. a lot of people were having fun. Oh yeah, yeah, it was a great time. Yeah. Well, it's totally off season. I mean, it's January in Ohio, right? But uh, boy, they do put on a great show. That's uh, Bill Wagner, Diane Marsh, that whole group of folks yep. really do a great show. We really enjoyed ourselves last year. It was yeah. last year, wasn't it, Richard? It was last year. So. Yeah. Just, you know, the years just sort of pile up. So let's talk about app fabric in its many forms. Maybe we should start with, uh, if you've been, you know, living under a rock, what, what is it all about? You know, uh, it's, uh, it's something we announced at, at uh, PDC. And, uh, in fact, leading up to the PDC, even like a week or two before, we, we weren't exactly sure what we were going to call some of the technologies that we had these code names for. And, and the, I think it was the week before they finally landed on this name, this app fabric name. And, uh, so there's a little bit of, uh, uh, like a lot of things that Microsoft does, there's in the name, there's wrapped up two things. There's a, there's a vision for where we want to go. And there is the specifics of some bits that we've released uh, in beta form already. So I think it's good to begin with kind of the vision of where we'd like to go. And then and then later we can drop into the specifics of, of what's happening right now. Okay. Um, you know, so if you've worked with Windows Azure uh, at all, or just if you, you know, experimented with it a little bit, there's this really interesting property of, of dealing with Azure in that you're dealing with kind of abstractions. You know, you, we give you a, a web role or a worker role and, you know, you upload your bits and you say, I want five of those. And you don't really think about what server is that on? What data center does it live in? You know, what process am I running in? You don't think about any of those things. Because you don't even know what they are, you just and you don't really care. You shouldn't have to know. Um, and and the good thing is, if you don't know and you don't care, then you don't build your code in such a way that it needs to know. And this way of building apps results in this kind of amazing flexibility. And so when I think of a of a fabric, the notion is like, you know, if I had a a piece of kind of stretchy elastic fabric in my hands here, you know, I could. I could stretch it out and and make it bigger if I needed to, or I could let it, you know, go back and get smaller again if I needed to. So the idea is that, you know, it can grow and shrink kind of as I need it to. Um, and I don't have to worry about, uh, oh, well, you know, I got to go buy a new server tomorrow because I need some more, or, oh, I bought too many servers, so now what am I going to do with these excess servers laying around, or, or whatever. I don't worry about that. I just get what I want and use what I want when I want it. So is the is the metaphor apply that it's sort of like a raw material with which you can forge your your stuff together? Yeah, that's a that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, certainly. And it's uh uh now a lot of people have built kind of uh cloud computing infrastructures that were based on a uh sort of the first generation of cloud computing was based on, on virtual machines. So really you were working with a virtual machine in the cloud um, which was a, just uh, almost the same idea as working with a virtual machine in your environment. And so um, it was okay. That's an okay idea, but it doesn't really quite get us to where we want to be with the fabric because the fabric provides us a level of application services that are uh, higher up the stack than just a virtual machine would be. Mm. And and so, you know, one of the things that we have, of course, in Windows Azure is a service bus. And so you can you can put a message out on the bus and and things that are relayed uh, or or rather registered for that can can receive those messages wherever they happen to be. And and ideally, if I if I send out a message, you know, I don't want to have to know, oh, this message goes to that machine, because then, you know, when I build those kinds of assumptions into my application, 
I'm locking myself into one way of thinking uh-huh. where it, in, in the fabric, I want to be very flexible, right? So I say, send this message to whomever might be listening. Right. And the fabric works it out. And wherever they are globally or whatever data center, who cares? I don't care. I don't want to care. I just want the message to get there. So you're just working with names of services or names of uh, uh, abstractions? Yeah, exactly. So by by doing this, really we're following this long path that we've been on this journey for many years in, in programming, right, of of moving up the stack. Right. I mean, many, many years ago, of course, people dealt with, you know, writing things in assembler and mm. Which uh, somebody I read once called that like working with mental tweezers, you know? That's, right. <laughs> That's great. It, it, yeah, it, it takes really you is. know hours. Yeah, right. it takes hours to get the littlest thing done, right? And right. and uh, and you had to target a very specific CPU yeah. instruction set and stuff like that, right? Nobody wants to do that anymore. And uh, I remember the big transition of my life, which was moving from unmanaged code to managed code, and yeah. How at first it felt a little uncomfortable giving up control over my heap manager and, mm. and whatnot. But eventually I got used to it and, and now I would never want to go back because the wonderful flexibility of dealing with a higher abstraction, uh, makes my life easier. It makes me more productive. Right. So this is just the, the next level of abstraction. Yeah. Right. Now, now let's talk about the where we are today. Now, if if you're writing an app today and you um, you've been writing apps that you know were targeting Windows Server, say inside of your organization, um, if you wanted to go and take that app and and put it into Windows Azure today, well, Windows Azure has a whole different model for programming, and so you know you have to kind of target that platform uh, when you want to build an app that works in Azure. And so we have today kind of a model where Azure is one sort of target and inside the enterprise is another sort of target. And in the long run, what we said at PDC we want to do is make it so there's just one model, that it's the same model, whether you're deployed in Windows Azure in the cloud and you're doing all that wonderful stuff, or if you're, if you're deploying targeting inside your enterprise, uh, because, you know, you can imagine, like, if you're in the enterprise, most people know that the, the workloads, of course, vary a lot uh, on the servers in the enterprise. Like, maybe at the end of the month or end of a quarter, things go crazy and the servers are getting really busy. And so when the enterprise is kind of planning their capacity planning, you know, they, they have to look at their peak loads and they have to buy enough server hardware to handle the peak loads. And, of course, the more servers you have, the more bodies you have to have of people managing these servers and so forth. It gets expensive. And uh, uh, so wouldn't it be cool if down the road you could say, you know, um, most of the time we could get by with, I don't know, pick a number, five servers. Most of the time we could get by with five servers. But at the end of the quarter or once a year, we need eight servers because just things go crazy. Um wouldn't it be cool if during those brief periods of excessive activity, if our app could reach up into the cloud and pull in the additional capacity it needed just for that week or month or whatever, uh, and we pay for just what we need. And so most of the time we're just using the servers we have in our enterprise, but every now and then we could reach up to the cloud and grab a little extra when we need it. I could even see that daily, you know, between three and five in the afternoon. Well, we why deploy not, outward. Why not on demand? How am I supposed to know when our when our demand is going to go up and down? Shouldn't it happen automatically? Well, and that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? If the so the idea is is that this fabric might might be kind of flexible within my enterprise, but it could actually stretch up into the cloud and grab more stuff when it needs it. Maybe kind of on demand. So I would I could set up in advance. You know, hey, when I need it. Uh, why don't you grab me up to 10 additional servers in Azure if I need it? Um, and if I don't, I don't. And I only pay for what I use. Hmm. Now, that would be really cool. Yeah. So that's that's kind of where we want to get to in in the long term. So that's kind of our you know visionary statement there. So at the PDC, we started applying this name to AppFabric to some things that today are targeting Windows Server 
just for inside the enterprise. And the name App Fabric is also applied to some things that are in Windows Azure, which which confused people a little bit, honestly, because some people, you know, said when I say, "Oh, yeah, I'm I'm talking about App Fabric," I was talking to some guys in another country, and and uh, we were talking about me visiting their country and and talking to people there, and they said, "Oh, well, we we can't do Windows Azure in our country yet," and I said. Well, that's fine because there's a lot of stuff to talk about on the Windows Server side of App Fabric. So they didn't even realize that App Fabric can be applied to both. So, why on earth? I know you're just thinking this question, Carl. Mm-hmm. I know you're thinking, <laughs> why on earth would Microsoft confuse people with a name? Why? Wow. Why would we do this? Don't you have a long tradition of this? <laughs> yeah, that's what you guys do. Yeah. <laughs> we, we wouldn't expect anything less. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, see, that's the the point was we w- when we when we're saying the name is is on both sides of the fence. It was just a part of a hint of saying our our goal is that one day anything that has App Fabric attached to it would work exactly the same way in both places in right, the okay. cloud and in Windows Server. Uh, and so that's that's the vision. Now I said earlier we would kind of drop back and talk about the reality because hmm. vision is great, but we're a long ways from the vision. And so the reality is at PDC, we shipped Windows Server App Fabric Beta 1. And yeah. those bits are available today. You can download them and they're, and they're pretty cool and fun to play with. So now uh, the App Fabric Beta 1 consists of two things that were previously known by code names. Um, one of the code names was Dublin, uh, and the other one was Velocity. You guys are familiar with these? We are. I'm not so sure our listeners are. So maybe we should define <laughs> them. Okay. So uh, Dublin was, or is, and Dublin was the code name, and those things are now in App Fabric for um, some in, in sort of an evolution to the experience of hosting a WCF service or uh, a workflow or workflow service in Windows Server. Uh, and so you'll see if you install uh, App Fabric, you'll see if you fire up IS, you'll look in the IS manager and you'll see some additional widgets in the management pane that, that, uh, that help you in dealing with services and, and workflows. Uh, they help you do things like setting up the monitoring and persistence database for workflows, they uh, can show you what services you have on your server and what endpoints are listening. And um, if you have workflow services, there's an incredible amount of tracking data. It tells you everything that's going on in your server, what workflows have been started, what activities were going on. If they had unhandled exceptions, it tells you all about this. It's, it's fantastic. It's probably the richest uh, monitoring infrastructure we've ever had. Uh, for knowing what's going on inside your servers and services. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's very cool from that point of view. Um, now, the other thing that the velocity piece, this velocity is just so incredible, it blows my mind. Um, velocity is a distributed in-memory cache. And uh, uh, a lot of people have have said, well, you know, I've, I've got a cache on my web server, right? I mean, that's cool. That I've got a cache. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but you see, when you're dealing with a cache, you always have this trade-off you're making. You're thinking, how much memory should we devote to caching? And, you know, we don't want to devote too much memory to caching because it puts memory pressure on the web server. It's going to hurt its performance. It's hard to kind of tune that. And And so people are usually pretty conservative about, what kind of things we put in the cache, um, which, you know, you have to think carefully about. Um, but what if we could have a caching tier? So we sort of have a, we have a web tier, a farm of servers, right, that makes our, our ability to deal with HTTP requests sort of not limitless, but it's very scalable, right? We can just throw more servers on the farm. So what if we could have a caching tier that would, uh, make our ability to add more and more memory of cache just as simple as throw another server in the caching tier and dedicate a big chunk of memory on that mm-hmm. server to just dealing with caching data. Wow. 
Uh, and so now it could be very possible for me to get, you know, 20, 50, 100 gigs of cash. Oh, it, th- then that totally changes the game, right? Because now I could cash things that before I would have probably not cashed because I was too, too worried about the memory consumption. So is, is it suffice to say that now we don't have to worry so much about things like, oh, those nasty words like view state and session data and where they go and are they scalable? And is, is that the kind of thing that we're handling here for ASP.NET anyway? It's, uh, that's probably going a little too far, but, uh, now I would say that, you know, session state is, is one of the big ones where people have had to compromise, right? Because right. if you're using session state, you're thinking, well, if I'm using session state on a farm, maybe I have to go with sticky sessions. So I always get the request at the same web server, or, uh, I might use a, a session, a, a database server to, to kind of share my session state across mm-hmm. servers, but it's a little bit slower. So one of the things that the App Fabric cache can do is it can serve as a session state provider. And what that means is that, you know, if I've got five servers on my web farm uh, and I put something in session state on one of them, it's going to be accessible on all of them, but it's going to draw directly out of memory um, from one of my cache servers and it will it will be faster than accessing it out of a database. Uh, so that is is uh, clearly an area where it's going to help a lot. View state uh, doesn't really help you at this point, hmm. unless you redirect your view state to the session, which you can do. It takes a little bit of code. Yeah, that's true. Now in this first release, um, that's about the limit of its integration with ASP.NET directly. Um, but we are thinking in the future that uh, we will make it even more deeply integrated with ASP.NET, perhaps even de- dealing with its like output page caching and things like that. Mm. Uh, so, but today that's not not there yet. So today we have a session state provider for Velocity. That's true. Yes. And then, but you can also code directly against Velocity yourself. You can basically use it like a data objects cache. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And, and in fact, it's a, it's an explicit cache, which means that, uh, it doesn't know anything about your database. Okay. So, you know, if some, if you want to get something in the cache, you have to put it there. If you want right. to get something out of the cache, it, you know, it has policies to evict under, uh, you know, after a amount of time or, or memory pressure or whatnot. But if you want to remove things, you can and whatnot. But it doesn't like, go look in the database for you or automatically cache yeah. things or anything like that yet. You know, maybe down the road it might do those kind of things. Um, so the the other really cool thing about this is there there are other, you know, people and, and open source projects that do uh, distributed memory caching. But one of the things that um, they force you into is sort of making a choice. Like, well, do I do my cache just on my web server or do I do this distributed cache tier um, because, you know, uh, it's faster, obviously, to access something that's in memory on my web server, um, but it's more scalable to access something that's on the cache tier. So what Velocity does, uh, or I should use its proper name, App Fabric Cache, what it <laughs> does is it gives you a good middle ground. So I can, if I want to, enable a local cache on my web server and also use the distributed cache. So the way that works is if, you know, I'm processing a web request and I go to my cache and I say, hey, can I get, you know, key foo out of the cache? And so uh, the local velocity or, or fabric cache uh, bits there look in their local cache and say, hmm, I don't have that. They run a hash over the key and then they know about all the cache servers and they, they'll be able to figure out which cache server now holds that key. They go to remotely to get that key. Mm-hmm. Now they bring it back onto uh, that server. They store it in its local memory and then they, um, then they return the value. Now the next time I need to access that value, I get it right off of the local cache, which is an order of magnitude faster than going remote. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Now some people say, well, why don't I just, you know, if I'm going remote, I'm just going to go to the database, you know. But the the problem is that the database is a limited resource, right? And typically, unless you work pretty hard to partition your data out across multiple servers, typically 
your database gets, you know, the, the access, concurrent access gets hot, right? And it starts bogging down under the weight of all these requests. So if I can think more about what can I cache for how long and putting this data out into the cache tier, I actually lighten the load on my database and, and let it do the very important work of kind of transactional updates and keep it free for doing as much of that as possible. And for large amounts of the data that we're showing people, you know, you could, you could cache most of that. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. If you're developing a new line of business application, then you probably tried the latest Silverlight version. Now you can achieve even greater results by combining the functionalities of Silverlight 4 Beta with the richness of third-party controls. Our friends at Telerik are the first vendors to offer native support for Silverlight 4 Beta in their RAD Controls for Silverlight 4 CTP suite. The Telerik controls let you tap into the framework's great potential, like the native right mouse click and more. Be sure that all 38 controls benefit from the latest and greatest in Silverlight 4, so you can start building compelling applications right away. Check out the product at Telerik.com slash Silverlight. And hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com slash Telerik. Ron, as soon as we start serializing to go, you be able to distribute the cash, we're paying a fairly significant penalty there, right? I mean, this is not free. You're out of process no matter what. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's always a challenge of synchronization. Like how much overhead does that invoke and how many machines can we really harness into a group like this? Yeah. So the, um, the app fabric cache, uh, one of the things it does is it's very dynamic. So, I could start with two machines and then, you know, one day I can go, well, I think I want some more cache memory. I can throw another machine into the app fabric cache cluster and the machines know about each other and they start talking to each other and uh, they begin, you know, it, it'll add the machine. It'll rework the balance of the cache and so forth. So it's pretty dynamic and I can likewise remove a machine if I need to or the, the cache machines detect if one of the machines has either locked up or gone down for some reason, and they'll they'll compensate. Um, which even, by the way, it does support a high availability mode. In which case, like if I was dealing with uh, session state data that I don't want to lose, right? Um, I could do high availability mode, and, and then it it will have the cache data on more than one server. So in case one of them goes down. You know, it's not it's not backed up by durable storage, so it's not you know that kind of high availability. No. But it's at least at least to the point where it's a pretty good effort. It'll be on more than one server. If one of the servers goes down, it'll recruit another server to be the backup and things like that. So. And are these dedicated machines, or would these actually be the web servers? They're they're dedicated machines, so they would yeah would not be the same server as a web server. But it does mean that when a web server makes a request for session, it has to go out to those machines and fetch it. Yeah, unless unless you enable the local cache also. So then you have the possibility, it might find the session in the local cache memory right there in process. Right. So it's going to be much faster to get it there. Because you're right, going off server is an order of magnitude slower. Yeah, and these are still milliseconds, but they're not nanoseconds. True. True. So, yeah, it's going to be pretty, pretty good and pretty fast. And it's, it's under the covers, of course. Uh, App Fabric Cache is using WCF with the TCP binding, so it's you know doing the most efficient, uh, you know, kind of communication it can. But mm-hmm. still, anytime you're doing that, you're going to take a, take a hit. Now, let me tell you though a story about uh, one scenario that I thought was very interesting because most of the people who think about using App Fabric Cache, think of it in terms of web apps and, and web farms and stuff. But I was visiting with a company who makes software for, um, you know, hospitals and clinics and doctor's offices and things like that. And they, they run a smart client app, the, a WPF app, right? And uh, uh, like a lot of people in this situation, the, you know, you can imagine a clinic in a small town um, and they have kind of a slow WAN connection to this clinic, and the big database lives back at the corporate data center in the you know some big city nearby. But the the data access feels kind of slow, and so one of the ideas we had in just kind of thinking through their architecture was, 
you know, what if during the night we had a workflow that, that wakes up and says, you know, who's going to be at the clinic tomorrow? Because we know who has appointments, right? Right. So we could look up their charts and their records. And most of this data is going to be read-only. The doctor's going to look over their history or whatever. Uh, so we could suck that down to a app fabric cache that lives on a server at that remote clinic. We could send it over then during the night so it's already pre-populated. And then when the doctor comes in the morning, he fires up the app, the chart just comes up, bam, it's right there. you know. And they go, wow, this is a lot faster than, than what we expected. Now, if somebody comes in that wasn't planned or it's an emergency or whatever, then they still got to go back to the database. But, but you know, I think there's, there's cases where you could do something like this and you could, because there's now so much more cache memory available, you could even imagine sort of in these off-peak times kind of preloading things into the cache that maybe you wouldn't have cached in the past. Yeah, that kind of thinking of just anticipating need so that you seed the cache with what's out there. Well, .NET 4.0 now has that a mechanism built in where when the server comes up, it can start loading the cache rather than waiting for the first user to hit it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and, and this is where workflow is a nice match for that because, you know, we could create a workflow that, that wakes up every night and, you know, goes off and does things. Or you could even do it um, like if somebody logged into a system and you call a service, um, you know, in, in the past, whenever we made a service, you always had to go, you know, receive the request, do your work, and then send a response. And so you would try to do as little work as possible and just send a response right away. Uh, one of the things that's cool about a workflow service is that it can do that. It can get the request, do a little bit of work, and just enough to generate the response and then send the response. But then it can continue working after the initial response was sent. So maybe you log into my system and uh, I'm going to, you know, validate your login and send back, yeah, you're authenticated. Then I might say, hey, um, I think Richard's going to access his account information or, you know, here's the things he was looking at last time. I'm going to preload those in the cache because, you know, I think you're going to look at them. And so the workflow could go off and, and gather up a bunch of stuff and stick it in the cache. And even though it's a, it's a workflow service running on a back-end server, the web server can draw from the same cache and now show you this data maybe faster than we would have in the past, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, Ron, can I bring you to the uh, bring you back to the service bus? Or I don't even know if we've talked about the service bus yet, but uh, I, yeah, I, every once in a while I have a conversation with somebody, you know, some old school programmer who says, "Well, why do I need a service bus? I can, you know, it's the internet. I, that's what TCP/IP is for. I can connect." To this guy, if I need to connect to this guy and connect to that guy, if I want to connect to that guy, and you know, firewalls are pretty, uh, you know, pretty pretty easy to deal with nowadays. A Windows Seven client or a Vista client pops up, you know, if it needs to share something. It it's a yes, no, click, done kind of deal. What um, what 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 do we say to those people? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it is true that. Uh, with with a certain kind of person in a certain kind of situation that, yeah, you just go, yeah, open that port, you know, just go for it. And uh, maybe on my home machine or, you know, whatever, I can do that. But if you're working in the world of business and in uh, enterprises and, you know, then you got to deal with IT administrators and and guys who say, there's no way I'm opening port 9002 for you forget about it. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're going to have that conversation sooner or later, right? There's just, uh, uh, I mean, trying to get these things, these ports open through corporate firewalls, it takes an act of God, you know. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think that's realistic. Then the other issue is, uh, what about, you know, when I take my laptop and, and I go to, you know, I'm traveling like last week, I was at CodeMash and I'm in a hotel somewhere and the hotel I'm dealing with the hotels network. And, uh, I remember once many, many years ago, um, I used to play, uh, this game online and, and, uh, I remember checking into a hotel and, and it wouldn't connect to the game servers, you know, at night mm. when I wanted to play. And so I thought, 
I wonder if I call their help desk, if I ask them if they would open these ports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It didn't work. <laughs> yeah, and you get, uh, what's that? Yeah. Yeah. You want me to do what? You want me to do what? So, so, uh, so here's the deal. So in, in TCP IP land, you can be both a host and a client. And the host is the guy who serves up the connection to other clients connect to them. And being a host is just, far more complex and problematic than connecting. You connect every day when you go to a website. You're on port 80, you're done. The service bus uh, is just a, a single point where you can be a host as in, in terms of having people you know, send messages to you, but you at TCP world, you make a connection first to the bus, and everybody that connects to the bus then can send through that bus to each other. And I, I had this really, uh, this experience happened to me just yesterday. I was doing a DNR TV with uh, Sahil Malik and we use a, a tool called um, uh, VNC, Ultra VNC to do, to, to remote in so that I can see his screen while he's recording or vice versa. And uh, it just wasn't working. And we had no idea what the problem was, but it was obviously a firewall problem. So there's um, another program out there um, called Crossloop, and Crossloop is just that. It's a it, it's a bus kind of architecture where instead of connecting directly to Sahil, we both connect to a single point that is accessible. Now, well, here's here's why I needed to do this. I was uh, with VNC the the somewhere between he and I. There was a bad route. I asked him to go. There was a bad router. I asked him to go to, you know, where, what's my bandwidth.com or someplace that's a bandwidth meter. And he had like 13K, uh, 13 megabits down and six megabits up. And I had about the same thing. So, I've, but, but now I'm looking at his connection because I'm directly connected to him. There's some sort of problem. So I do a trace route and I find out that somewhere in Comcast land, some router isn't responding. So in going to the bus idea, all we had to have was both have good connections to this, to this server that was out there, uh, and, and that worked just fine. So we essentially uh, bypassed that router completely because we weren't directly connecting. Yeah, well, and that's the beauty of this is that it, it takes some of the hard problems um, – out of you know you having to deal with them uh so and 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 by the way it also deals with some very tricky um issues like dealing with nat firewalls and 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 whatnot as well so and and not to mention security which is a huge one right i mean if i just mm. take my machine that's sitting on the internet and open up a port I've now opened up a potential vulnerability, right? Uh, and so my app better be very good, and I better know how to deal with a lot of the security issues that are going on there. Yeah. So if I deal with the bus, then I'm 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 saying I'm going to let the bus be that line of defense for me. It's going to deal with the security issues. It's going to, you know, uh, when the attackers throw their cruddy attacks at it, it's going to handle that. And it's going to authenticate users and connections and then send to me only what I can take. So I'm not really exposing, um, you know, my address to the world. I'm exposing it to to the bus only yeah. and letting the bus handle the hard part for me. Yeah. You don't think of it this way, but there's a risk every time I go and make a connection anywhere. So just sort of offloading the responsibility for the connections. Let something else do that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and certainly any time that you host a connection, you're at risk. Yeah, that's right. Well, and so one of the ideas behind the service bus um, was also, you know, sort of also in the in the realm of App Fabric. I mean, people said to me, "Hey, Windows Azure sounds pretty cool. You know, I can put my app out there, but but my app needs." resources that live on, you know, systems inside my enterprise. Like I have to talk to the mainframe or, you know, uh, we're not going to take that data and put it out in the cloud. So if I can't put all my data in the cloud, how is Azure really going to help me? 
And, and so part of the notion of the of the service bus was to say that we recognize that apps are distributed and you you need to connect to the data wherever it might be. So you know here you know if I'm the salesman has got his laptop and he's out in a hotel room in Timbuktu you know and he's trying to connect through this NAT firewall, um, he can connect to processing that's in the cloud in Azure. If that needs something out of the mainframe, it can send a message over the service bus that will connect down into the enterprise in a nice, friendly, safe, and secure way. Uh, and and then back there, some service can can get the data it needs that lives in the enterprise and push it back up to the cloud. So you get an app that uh, that works regardless of where the data lives. And the uh, the sister uh, service to that is access control. Yeah. Let's talk about that a bit. This is basically claims-based access control, right? Exactly. And so, you know, what what we have to do anytime we're exposing services, we have to be very careful about the security. And uh, uh, so once, you know, if if you're inside the enterprise and you've got Active Directory and, and you know, you can work with Windows authentication and everything, uh, it's not too hard. I mean, that's sort of the bread and butter of security of services inside the organization, and it's not that hard. But once you go out into the cloud, um, and maybe you want to have people connecting to you from different organizations or, or whatever, you the complexity of the solution just explodes, right? And and security is hard enough as it is. You know, we don't need. Uh, this additional layer of complexity. So hmm. when we bring access control, uh, we're saying to the cloud and the bus up there, just, you know, can you guys take care of this for me? I'll tell you what, what kind of claims I want and who I want to allow in, and you guys manage it for me. Um, I'm, personally, I don't want to write a lot of security code. I really cringe when I have to write custom security code. Right. Because uh, I always worry... You know, there's stuff that you're missing, or a scenario you hadn't thought of, and you could get it wrong. And you know, I just don't want to do that. Right, so, app developers should work on the business problem. Yeah, you want to rely on the platform infrastructure wherever possible, and so we've taken that and put it out in the cloud. And 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 like I said, in the long term vision, uh, we want to see those aspects of the infrastructure in the cloud: the access control, the service bus, this this stretchy fabricy thing that lives in Windows Azure, we want to see that coming down into Windows Server and the enterprise as well. And so there's an SDK that we can use for access control. Does it work just like, uh, is it, is it just through WCF? Well, at this point, access control is not available uh, on Windows Server. It's only in Windows Azure. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you know, so there's Windows Identity Foundation, of course, if you're right. working in Windows Server. But but as I said, that's kind of the pain of where we are today. We have kind of these two different worlds. Yeah. And part of the work we're doing is to rationalize those two worlds. So the first step in that rationalization we'll see uh, later this year is uh, once .NET 4 is released, um, we'll see a CTP of the Windows Server app fabric capabilities. So the caching and the hosting of workflows and, and services and all of that good stuff. We'll see all of that available in a in CTP form in Windows Azure, and uh, so the first step will be take some of the capabilities in Windows Server and push them up into Windows Azure and get them all working wonderfully there. Uh, and then, kind of phase two will be to take some of the capabilities that exist only in Windows Azure, like Service Bus and Access Control, and bring those down in, into the enterprise and the, the other fabricy, stretchy elements of, of Azure, and we'll bring them down into the enterprise. Right. Uh, we'll see that happening later. Uh, not exactly sure. You know, maybe maybe late in the year, but it's hard to tell at this point. Okay. Well, yeah, and there's another side to this whole access control thing, which is the actual administration of it as well. I've been looking over Forefront's offerings. This is Microsoft Forefront, and they have a, 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 a whole protection control area and I, I don't get any sense that the, there's any way for developers to couple to that. It, it, it manages Microsoft security products, but it doesn't necessarily manage stuff that would be built in, in WIF or would be built over here either. Yeah, so that's, um, you know, and of course, Forefront is a product that, that targets the enterprise. 
Uh, so it's not surprising to me that you know they're they're really targeting handling security in a uh, a Microsoft enterprise centric view. You know that would be their their key scenario. Um, so yeah, there, there's certainly there's a lot of ways in which things are going to have to grow um, around the way that these capabilities surface in the enterprise to really make it work. Uh, in the way we want to in the future. And, and, you know, honestly, it just sometimes it seems like a long, long road. I mean, I remember when we first announced Azure at uh, the PDC in 2008, and it, it just seemed like, man, we have a long way to go. Yeah. Uh, but but here we are. We launched it. It's running, you know, and goes into live production. And so, I, I mean, we'll get there. We'll get there. It just takes, it just takes time. And, you know, the other thing... Um, that a lot of people are asking with uh, this capability and the and the things that have come out in workflow and workflow services is they're saying, well, what about BizTalk? Because you know, uh, maybe I use BizTalk. Maybe I really love BizTalk and I like the things it does and the ways it worked. And uh, so, where is BizTalk going to land in all this? Uh, and so, you know, to to the BizTalk crowd, we say, absolutely, BizTalk is moving forward in its role. Uh, in its sweet spot of integration server, you know, mm-hmm. so where it lives in that land between the mainframe and the rest of your enterprise or, or whatever and, and knows how to deal with these kind of unique uh, external situations like HL7 or Swift transactions or whatever. And so um, there's a whole team of people working on BizTalk, taking it forward in the future. And as part of that, after they get this next release out the door, um, which will come later this year, then they're going to adapt BizTalk to to run on top of this app fabric and be well integrated into the app fabric infrastructure just like everything else. So you'll see the same BizTalk capabilities. Um, the ways in which they get implemented might be a little different because they now will live in the land of app fabric. Uh, but that will be a good thing, right? Because now um, it'll be very well integrated into the rest of the ways in which workflow services and WCF and App Fabric Cache and Service Bus and all that stuff uh, work together. So that's one of the key goals that we have going forward. Well, because when you think a combination of WCF and workflow, you it feels to me like you'd almost recreate BizTalk. You know, on the surface, it it looks like that, but yeah. But uh, BizTalk is much richer than than just that, right? I mean, it it has so much more capability um, at th- that, you know, when people looked at it early on, you know, people would say, well, is BizTalk an integration server or is it an application server? And some people um, who, you know, worked with BizTalk and knew it and loved it and figured out everything about it, they said, well, man, I can use that like an app server. And, and in fact, you can. You can write services and and serve them up out, right out of BizTalk, and it's clearly something it can do. Um, and so, you know, uh, the the thinkers here in Redmond, you know, got got together and said, well, you know, is this what we want to say? Is this BizTalk is an app server and it's the app server and you ought to go, you know, build your apps on BizTalk as the app server? Or do we want to say that there is a level of capability in the .NET framework and Windows Server itself as kind of a core application server capability that you just get for free? Which, by the way, I should say, all this App Fabric stuff is just a free uh, element that comes with Windows Server. Right. Uh, it, it releases as a download and add-on, and you know, in the future, it'll be one of the roles built in and and all that kind of stuff. But you know, so so what we what we decided is no, there should be kind of a basic level of application server functionality that's available for free in Windows Server and .NET Framework, hmm. and then BizTalk adds a, on top of that a huge amount of capabilities and things. Um, and all the adapters, for example. Those are things sure. that nobody really wants to rewrite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and a lot of rich uh, uh, business activity monitoring and whatnot. And so, but on the other hand, um, some people have noted, hey, well, you know, with App Fabric and a workflow service, uh, when I look at the monitoring I get out of that, it feels very similar to what you get out of BizTalk, and 
that shouldn't be a surprise because mm-hmm. a lot of the same guys wrote the code that did that. So, um, you know, so what we're seeing is some of the things that, that have made BizTalk really great and really useful are getting pushed down into the base platform, and so they'll be available kind of to everybody who wants to use them. And other things are going to remain in that sweet spot of uh, what an integration server is and does, and, and that will continue to be BizTalk. Well, and let's face it, App Fabric's free and BizTalk really isn't. Yeah, so what what we have to remember is that whenever people say, oh, uh, you know, I can get this the, the FUBAR framework for free and just use that, you know, there, there's a, everybody knows that there is a lot of cost involved in building software that's a human cost, you know, and, right. and, uh, so, yeah, it's always the old trade-off, do we buy or build and, and whatnot? And, and that trade-off goes way beyond just the building, but, uh, what does it take to run it and maintain it, support it over its lifetime? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I mean, if I were, Definitely, if I were in the place where I had to do some integration between things and I could I could pick up BizTalk and some adapters that come out of the box and just with a little configuration, I got a solution, I think I'd probably opt for that over, you know, a bunch of custom code that that I could whip out. Um, even, if the, even if the initial cost was equivalent, uh, the long-term operational cost might, I would probably still go with BizTalk. It's like it's a maintainability issue. You don't want to own that code. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, I would, you know, I tell people that um, writing code is like giving birth. You know, there's you're <laughs> creating this this living thing that's that's going to be with you for years. It's like a kid. You it know, is, you have to yeah. feed it and maintain it, and until one day you retire it. <laughs> it's the only way that men can actually procreate. You know, by ourselves without the without the help of a female. You know, that's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, uh we've uh we've all probably experienced the giving birth to something that we wish we never had, you know. <laughs> and we have to go back and get rid of that thing, you know. Make so. that go away. Oh well. So a long long time ago, earlier in the show, we brushed over sort of the management parts of uh Dublin, the monitoring and management parts. Can yeah. uh, is there anything worth talking about there? Because that is yeah, sort of the so, boring stuff, you know. Well, well, actually, I think when you see it, you go, "Wow, this is pretty cool." In fact, uh, I have a video on uh, on Channel Nine on our on our Ten Four show mm-hmm. where I kind of walk through this hands-on lab I wrote for Workflow Services. And towards the end of the video, uh, I show the uh, App Fabric monitoring and um, and I also show the deployment. Which, by the way is very, very cool because, you know, deploying distributed apps has always been a pain in the neck. Mm. Uh, and and uh, deploying config files, you know, through different environments has been a huge pain. Right. So, you know, one of the cool things, of course, it's in uh, Visual Studio 2010 is the config transforms. So uh, in the hands-on lab, I actually have you walk through creating the config transforms. So that gives you a transformation that will convert your development web.config into a release web.config. Nice. And and in the lab, you know, so you have to change endpoints because, you know, when you're in your development environment, you're working against local hosts and some port and whatever. And then when you go to release, you're going to be working against, you know, the real server name and, and all those kind of things. So the config transform allows me to say uh, to Visual Studio, how do I want you to transform this config file so that when it ends up in the server, it looks right? Yeah. Because the last thing I want to do is, you know, give the IT guy a set of instructions like open Notepad, go to web config, type blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, that's just a disaster waiting to happen, right? Yeah. So um, what this does is it uh, we fully integrated into the web deployment tools. Um, and those get installed automatically with Visual Studio 2010, but they can also be added to any Windows server using, you know, the web platform installer. And so right there in Visual Studio, I'll create my project. I get how I want. It got it all working. I define my transformations and I just, I can either, if I have permission to deploy to the server, I could deploy it directly to the server. Although in, in most enterprises, the uh, developers can't do that. So what you do is you create a package. So Visual Studio will create this package for me. It's just a zip file with all the stuff that I need to give to the IT guy. 
Mm-hmm. I give it to the IT guy. He goes into the IS manager, which is a tool. Oh, let's say she, because, you know, we got to be fair. Yeah. So she goes into the IS manager. She's using a tool that she knows. She's worked with IS manager. She goes in and just says, deploy package, browses in, picks up the zip file. Uh, there's a couple of screens where she can change settings if she needs to, like connection strings or whatever. But um, uh, we can define those changes in our in our transforms if we need to. Um, and then, bam, it just deploys it right into the server. Um, wow. And no need to tweak or set up virtual app directories or anything like that. It just does it. Um, and wow. that's great for, for one server, you know, just IS manager. That's cool. But uh, what if we got, you know, 15 servers, you know, or 50 servers we got to deploy to? Well, you can script this whole thing. So you don't have to go through clicking and GUIs and everything. You just script the whole thing or PowerShell it and, and bam, it just spews that across the whole farm. So it's the same uh, deployment tool for web apps and services, and, and uh, it works with AppFabric and on all of that. So that's very cool. We did that integration work. And, you know, the other thing we did in AppFabric is that anything you can do in the UI, this is our rule, anything you can do in the UI, you can do with PowerShell. So, because I love PowerShell, and I, you know, uh, if I'm getting into processes that I'm going to do over and over again, I'm just going to write a PowerShell script to do it. Right. Uh, and so I think every that ought to be the rule across everything in my PC is that I could do it with PowerShell if I want to. Right. Uh, so uh, that was a huge thing. And of course, uh, when in fact, when you're dealing uh, in Beta One, if you get App Fabric Beta One. You look at the UI, you won't see anything about the cache in the UI. Uh, we're adding some things to the UI for, for later, but uh, all of the things you want to do that deal with the cache and setting up cache servers or starting them or stopping them or whatever, that's all done through PowerShell commands as well. Wow, very cool. Yeah. Uh, that, that's that's uh, light years ahead of what I thought we were going to have. So where can we... <laughs> Get uh, where can we get our hands on this stuff, and what's the release roadmap look like? So where you want to go to on on MSDN, we've created a little App Fabric Center Dev Center there on MSDN. So go to msdnmicrosoft.com WAC App Fabric, and uh, you'll find there links to download Beta One, plus links to videos like some of the videos I did and papers and things you can read about and all that kind of stuff. Great. Uh, so you can get beta one and, and you'll need visual studio 2010 and .NET uh, for beta two. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, now later, uh, when visual studio 2010 ships at the end of March or early April, rather, um, then what you're going to see is beta two of app fabric come out. Uh, and, our hope is at that time, uh, we'll see, but we're, our hope is that you'll be able to get a go-live license with, with AppFabric. So if you're using AppFabric Cache and you totally love it and you can't wait to put it into production, well, by that time, we hope that you'd be able to do that because it'll be uh, .NET 4 will be the released bits. And, and uh, so by that time, we should have everything pretty well locked down and there will just be some final rounds of testing so within a few months, two, three, four months after .NET 4 releases, then you'll see the final release of, um, or the V1 of Windows Server App Fabric. Wow. Sounds great. So uh, is there anything else that we want to mention before we sign off here? Well, you know, if people say to me, I mean, how can we really, you know, what should we do to learn about this uh, and, and really take advantage of it? And we've created a lot of great learning resources not only for App Fabric and WCF and Workflow, but all across all of the .NET framework, the team that I work with, a lot of bright guys here, we created the Visual Studio 2010 training kit. Uh, and this is something you can go download. It's got, you know, 150 megabytes worth of hands-on labs and presentations and stuff. And you can just think of the fun you could have <laughs> over your lunch hour. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> So you want to go get the VS 2010 training kit. Ron, thanks a lot for uh, talking to us about this. This is great stuff. And it's good to talk to you again. Hey, you're so welcome. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got transmitter bands by the FCC. Yes, I'm a... Uh...